Hey guys, Jules here. So we are in our second episode of a four-part series on the Catholic subculture. And because we are an arts and culture podcast, we decided to use the arts as a guide or as an avenue through which we are going to tell our story. Now, last episode, we used a classic work of fiction, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, to explain the immigrant subculture of urban areas like New York, Boston, etc. I highly recommend going back and listening to that, by the way, <laughs> for context for today's episode. But before we get into that, I wanted to start with a story. It's a story of a man who I deeply, deeply admire and have known for over a decade now, and whose story is going to help our story today. You were I'll living. be specific. You can be specific. I was born on the 24th of June, okay. 1947. Okay, so... Pius XII was the Pope and Tr <laughs> Truman was the president. <laughs> this is Dr. Joseph Burns. He was one of my professors in my graduate studies and has had such an incredible career. He was in the Air Force for 20 years. He has two master's degrees, a doctorate degree spent time as a professor, working for diocese, and is now enjoying the happy bliss of retirement. But I asked Dr. Burns to talk with me today, not because of his extensive background in theology, but I just wanted to sit down with him and hear some of his stories. And let me tell you, he was full of them, <laughs> specifically his stories of growing up in inner city Manhattan at the height of the golden an age at the Catholic subculture. Take, for example, the first day of the second grade. Uh, after we were served, and I thought it was wonderful, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, one of my favorites to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we sat down, we ate, we actually had desserts, which we didn't normally have at home. A little ice cream bar, and I thought, wow, this is going to be nice. And then when, when everyone was finished, uh, Either one of the sisters or one of the lunch ladies got up and said, okay, everyone, all the students have been through the line. If anybody would like seconds, you're free to come up now. And to me, that was like a, a saint had descended on a cloud <laughs> and said, come forth, Joseph. We have seconds. Seconds of the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Seconds of the dessert. I said, this can't be real. <laughs> but it was. Yeah, no, it was. Ah, he's, he's just the best. You guys are going to love him, and I hope you love this episode. This is the story of the Golden Age and the Legion of Decency. episode was all about early immigrant communities, particularly in urban areas, and the difficulties which they often faced, the dangerous living and working conditions, the persecution from the outside culture, etc. But we also saw the seeds of something quite beautiful being planted. We saw that amidst the persecution and the suffering, a unique religious subculture emerged. 
one with distinct religious practices and traditions, which often set them apart from their American counterparts. Here's what Dr. Bill Portier from the University of Dayton had to say about this time. Catholicism is not just a spiritual and interior religion. It's, it's a world. So to be a Catholic is to inhabit this world and it's to be part of this history in the world. And, and that is conveyed in various ways, most especially by material presence. So, so Catholics are the people that have stuff. We, we don't have our, our religion, our faith without statues and incense and relics. And, you know, our churches, or they used to be full of colors and various weird things, you know, physical things that people could see and be surrounded by. Catholics, because they were initially ostracized from participating in meaningful ways in the American culture, including things like politics and employment, they decided that they would invest in their own communities by building their own institutions. And as a result, they created physical boundaries, like literal physical boundaries (laughs) to their existence. Not only were neighborhoods often separated along ethnic lines, Polish Catholic parishes, Irish Catholic, etc. But Catholics also created institutions like hospitals, schools, soup kitchens, and even restaurants and bakeries, which uniquely catered to their needs. And as a result, they insulated themselves from the world, and subsequently, they flourished. By the arrival of the Second World War, Catholics had spent decades developing a flourishing internal culture, and the children of these immigrants started to see the benefits. Here's what Dr. Maria Mazinga, archivist at Catholic University of America, had to say about this period. And what happened was after World War II, um, you have the publication of a book, and it was called Protestant Catholic Jew, and it was by uh, a gentleman named Will Herberg, a scholar. And he argued that Catholics and Jews should no longer be considered kind of an outcast subgroup of American culture. They're central, just like Jews are. And um, they're part of this Judeo-Christian tradition that now is dominant in the United States. That happens. Also, at the time, Catholics have served in the Second World War, along with Protestants and Jews. And they've, they've died for their country alongside people of different faiths. That's overseas. So people are sacrificing family members for the American idea. At home, they're rationing. Um, They're not building new houses. They may be growing families, but they're getting sort of packed into houses because, because there were restrictions on building at the time. And by the time you have the end of World War II, um, these people want to move out to the suburbs and expand, right? Now, as I mentioned at the top of our episode in this series on the Catholic subculture, we will be using the arts as a guide to tell a broader story. And for today, there seemed no better avenue than the movies. Because at the end of the 1930s and into the really the mid 60s, Hollywood produced some of the most beloved and influential films of our American history. It's why it's often referred to as the golden age of Hollywood. But what you might not know, listeners, was just how much of a role the Catholic Church played in this golden age, particularly in the movies. So to understand this better, we're going to separate our story today into three parts. Part one, 
we're venturing into the world of the movies. Going my way, Academy Award winner for the best picture of its year. Bing Crosby, Academy Award winner for the best performance. Barry Fitzgerald for the supporting performance. Leo McCary for his great original story and inspired direction. Plus awards for the best screenplay and the best original song, Swinging on a Star. How would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? Going My Way, released in the heart of the Second World War, became an instant classic and really rose Bing Crasby's already existing fandom just through the roof. (laughs) The movie swept the Academy Awards in 1944, winning eight, and was incredibly commercially successful. But it also did something else. It captured the hearts of the men and women serving in the war. For some reason, there was something to this particular film which seemed to enliven their spirits. American servicemen who were screened this film in their um, in their training camps would write letters to Bing Crosby and, and Leo McCary, the director, and say that in this film, this is what we're fighting for. You have you have captured what America is, what we are fighting for. That, by the way, was Dr. Christopher Shannon, professor of history at Christendom College. Now, according to Dr. Shannon and other scholars I've spoken with, Going My Way was one of many films in this era, which rose to stardom thanks in part to the church's rising influence in society. The Song of Bernadette won the Academy Award the year before in 1943. And then, of course, there was just a whole bunch of other Catholic-filled films. (laughs) Boys Town, Bells of St. Mary, The Sound of Music, even Alfred Hitchcock got involved with I Confess, all influenced and really came of age thanks to the church's rising influence. And imagine growing up in this era, oh my goodness, your heroes, actors, singers, athletes like Joe DiMaggio, they were all Catholic and all revered. Imagine how that must have felt coming from immigrant parents who only a generation before had been ostracized and shunned. And I think it's time to reintroduce the man we met at the top of the episode, Dr. Joe Burns. You were I'll living. be specific. You can be specific. I was born on the 24th of June, okay. 1947. Okay, so... Pius XII was the Pope and Tr- <laughs> Truman was the president. <laughs> These are all historical figures to you, but they were part of my life. It was also the first day that... UFOs were sighted over the top of Mount Rainier. That's crazy. Uh, in Washington State, so I've often wondered if there was any connection. Uh, there was probably a connection. <laughs> now- Dr. Burns grew up in the heart of the golden age of this new Catholic subculture. Born in 1947 in the heart of Manhattan, Dr. Burns entered into the deeply developed and complex Catholic subculture of New York City, which Irish immigrants and really immigrants from all over Europe (laughs) had spent decades forming and investing in. And to him and to his peers, It was the only world they ever knew existed. In Manhattan, in that parish, it seemed the whole world was Catholic. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. we knew Jewish people, we knew Protestant people, but it seemed that the the ambiance, the milieu in which we lived, 
was entirely Catholic, and that included um, not just the local parish, but it seemed the whole world was Catholic because at the time, we were in the midst of the golden age of Hollywood that was greatly influenced by the Catholic Church uh, that started the Legion of uh, Decency. Ah, yes, the Legion of Decency. I think this would be a good time, listeners, just to take a brief step back from Dr. Byrne's story and learn a little bit about the history of Hollywood in America. Bear with me, but it goes a little something like this. In the 1920s and 30s, movie studios actually owned their own movie theaters, think MGM. Now this meant that they, and only they, could control what movies were shown in theaters. And obviously, they had incentive to only show their movies. (laughs) Now as a result, movies during this era were basically whatever would sell the most tickets. So you can imagine what gets people in the seats in these films. They tended to be extremely violent, very explicit in nature, of course, and were, as a result, very commercially successful. So Catholics were really the first to speak out against these films, or some of the first, saying, of course, that they were immoral. In 1929, Martin Quigley, along with Father Daniel Lord, put together what became known as the Motion Picture Production Code. This code gave a set of guidelines for films, such as no nudity, no immoral behavior, and also, by the way, it had some pretty terrible things, like no interracial marriage. Now, Catholic councils in parishes would actually recite a pledge to this code in different parish meetings and gatherings. Now, at this time, the relationship between the movie industry and the First Amendment was actually a little bit blurred. FDR was creating government agencies with a frenzy (laughs) and everyone speculated it would only be a matter of time before he created one which would censor movies. So in a panic, the movie studios decided to meet the federal government halfway. And out of this, with the help of the Motion Picture Production Code, the Legion of Decency was born. And their influence dominated from about the mid-30s to the mid-60s, the golden age of Hollywood when the best films were made, but they were very, very Catholic. I mean, actors and actresses vied for roles as priests and nuns and saints and just uh, fabulous. Uh, In the 50s, that morphed more into these big spectacular films like The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and Mm -hmm. The Robe and on and on. So that that was all the backdrop of of our lives. The Legion of Decency's primary role was releasing a rating system for movies. It went something like this, objectionable or condemned, objectionable but okay, more on the adult side, and then not objectionable at all. And the Legion of Decency's primary vehicle for releasing these ratings became the Independent Office of the Production Code Administration. The Production Code Administration was led by a devout Catholic man named Joseph Breen, and his staff would literally comb through every single movie script, saying what should be taken out, and if the film studio complied, it would receive the... PCA's stamp of approval in their credits. And you could not have a successful film in the golden age without the PCA's approval. So why is this important? 
Well, think about it from the perspective of a young Joel Burns. In the most popular artistic medium of the era, and it actually probably is the most popular still, it was Catholics who dominated the arena. Actors were vying to play the roles of priests and nuns. Catholic storylines, like saving a small intercity parish in Going My Way, became the most sought after scripts in Hollywood. And behind the scenes, Catholics were pulling the strings of what films should be seen and what films should contain. If there was ever a doubt of the church's blossoming influence in modern culture, those doubts were soon dissolved. (laughs) The church was now a major player in the broader American scene. Bing as the gay singing padre of the toughest parish in New York. Barry is the crusty old codger who can't figure out what the younger generation is coming to. Young man, as a, as a matter of curiosity, what made you become a priest? And now those of you who have seen Going My Way once, twice, or even three times will be able to relive every heartwarming, laugh-filled moment again. And those few of you who have never seen it have an unforgettable experience in store. Which brings me to part two of today's episode, the response of the American culture. We need to take a step back for a minute to help answer this question. How did this happen? How did the Catholic Church suddenly become so influential in the broader American story? Well, here's Dr. Christopher Shannon again. So by the middle of the 20th century, uh, by historic standards, Catholics seem to have um, the almost the best of both worlds. That is, many of the, the most kind of toxic, if you will, material challenges of the earlier period had been overcome. Uh, yet that culture that sustained them through those times remained, uh, remained strong and was even starting to get at least some kind of recognition in Uh, in America as a whole. As mentioned previously by Dr. Mazinga and Dr. Shannon, Catholics came out of the Second World War suddenly on an equal playing field. They had strong immigrant subcultures in their hometowns, but they also just served in a war side by side with their fellow Americans. Catholics fought in the war and Catholics died in the war. And suddenly, their bizarre religious practices, their festas and statues and their large, ornate parishes, their Latin mass and their prayers, these were no longer seen as bizarre or foreign. But now they were looked upon with fresh eyes. And the films of this era especially portrayed this. Traditions suddenly became beautiful. Priests became heroes. Nuns became the adorable disciplinarians. (laughs) And all that once seemed other now seemed to be the very definition of American success of the American dream. But as a result, something else started to happen. Society as a whole began to change. Baby boomers entered the scene when servicemen and women started having children in just rapid numbers, and the American culture needed 
to expand. Like it literally needed the room to expand. And from this development came the suburbs. By the way, there were lots of reasons that the suburbs expanded so rapidly. Some good, some not so good, like the racial implications. But I'm going to let Father Mark Massa, professor of theology at Boston College, explain what happened to the Catholic culture with the advent of the suburbs. People who um, who blame Vatican II for the collapse of the ghetto are about 15 years too late. Uh, the ghetto collapsed. The ghetto collapse began with the GI Bill of 1945. In 1945, the U.S. Congress passed a bill called the GI Bill, and it said that any GI who had served in the armed forces during World War II could go to college for free and the government would pick up the tuition bills. That began a very, very rapid collapse of all those ghettos because what it meant is suddenly you went from a a Catholic population composed of various immigrant groups, not just Irish, but like in the New York City population today, there are more Hispanic Catholics than Irish Catholics. all those immigrant groups began to move out of the ghettos into what social scientists call the areas of second settlement. They moved from the Lower East Side of Manhattan or wherever out to Long Island or to Westchester County, or et cetera. So it was really the educational experience of the GI Bill that allowed Catholics to move out of their very small network of, of um, institutions, educational institutions, social institutions, literary institutions, all those things, even newspapers into the larger world. So the GI Bill gave Catholics the ability to learn side by side with their fellow Americans at non-Catholic universities. The suburbs let Catholics expand and intermingle with one another in a new, slower-paced American life. And the arts, culture, particularly the movies, let Catholics feel as if their traditions, their habit of being, was central to the success of the American dream. The golden age of Hollywood, immersed into the Catholic experience, became in a sense the golden age for Catholics as well. Which brings me to the third part of today's episode. We've seen how the movie industry has responded to Catholics. We've seen how the broader culture has responded to the rising influence of Catholics. So what about the church? How did they respond to their new found influence? Uh, back then, the Paris really was the center, but we all agreed on what the faith was. Mm-hmm. We were united in our beliefs, and uh, now in, in some parishes, you can find people who reject uh, one or more of the church's teaching teachings and still feel comfortable um, going to church, going to mass. It's uh, it's a whole different sense of, of what it means. If a parish is strong, that'll be to a much uh, less degree. But that was basically non-existent in our childhood. We all agreed on what the faith was, and we did our best to live it, you know? Last episode, when we talked about how people use this phrase, you know, I want to return to the Catholic ghetto. <laughs> They're not talking about the working and living conditions. They're talking about this. They're talking about an age where life was centered around the parish, where everyone agreed or at least pretended to agree on doctrinal matters, and where it seemed, as Dr. Burns stated, the whole world was Catholic. And Dr. Burns knew 
only the Catholic world because it really was his whole world. Dr. Burns' parents divorced when he was very young and he and his mom and his four siblings moved into a small two-bedroom apartment with his grandparents. And the heart of his existence, the means of survival for his family, became his local church. After 10 years of marriage, a very turbulent marriage, um, uh, my parents were divorced. We moved 12 blocks away to uh, 67th Street, and our new parish became St. Catherine of Siena. The parish, like its immigrant subculture predecessor, still remained the literal center for its golden age Catholics, especially in urban areas. In the midst of the difficulties of Dr. Burns's life, his family's poverty, his parents' divorce, he could still return to his center. St. Catherine of Siena Parish was the center of our lives in a quite literal way. Uh, You might think of three centers, our family at home, St. Catherine's Park, which was literally across the street, and about 100 yards away was St. Catherine's Church. So the whole neighborhood was St. Catherine's, but those were the three primary centers, the home, the park, and the parish. Mm -hmm. By far, the most influential was the parish, because all of our activities centered around the parish. We, we went to school there. All of our friends were from there. Um, we participated in school plays every year. We received our sacraments there. We received both our academic and spiritual formation there. Um, the priest and the nuns were heroic figures, and they played a very influential, influential lo- a role in our lives. Um, we were poor. We were a broken family. We were just, today they call it dysfunctional. But uh, so um, we, we had moved. My mother and five young children moved in with her parents. Um, uh, and we lived in a small two-bedroom apartment, you know. Four of us were in two bunk beds, literally U.S. Army wooden bunk beds. <laughs> the parish still provided life with a texture, with a starting point. And the liturgical life of the church still provided the backdrop of one's existence. Here's Dr. Mazinga again. Um, for example, the festa and the celebration of the local patron saint, like um, the celebration of Our Lady of Mount Carmel in East Harlem, um, in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, a massive street festival where the Madonna was paraded through the streets and, you know, dollar bills were pinned to her and, and people would ask for things and then there would be Italian food offered. And that gave this local celebration of this locally celebrated saint um, or patron um, a, a texture and a, a point of interest and something that you could really kind of physically grab onto. And yet, change was in fact in the air. The best of both worlds attitude of American Catholics simply wasn't sustainable. The suburbs were being created at massive speeds. Catholics were being educated and challenged by non-Catholics at secular universities. And with the election of the country's first and only Catholic president in 1960, it seemed assimilation was inevitable. The collapse of the ghettos, the destruction of the parish as the physical and spiritual center seemed inevitable. 
Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar And be better off than you are Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long funny ears Picks up at anything he hears His back is brawny and his brain is weak He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak And by the way, if you hate to go to school You may grow up to be a mule when I was a little girl, my mom used to sing this song to me, Swing on a Star. And I am not kidding, I only just realized <laughs> after watching Going My Way with my husband for the first time that this is where the song came from. And it's a song which is so fascinating because it seems to encompass all that we feel we've lost with the golden age of the Catholic subculture. In the film, Bing Crosby is a new, young, progressive-minded priest assigned to a struggling parish under the direction of Pastor Father Fitzgibbon. Father Fitzgibbon is stuck in the past of the way things once were. His parish community is starting to leave the neighborhood thanks to expansion, and his church is on the verge of closing. And Bing Crosby, this young, charismatic priest with the voice of an angel, is sent by the bishop to try to mix things up a bit to specifically enliven the youth population and basically to save the church. <laughs> and the film ends with this new Bing Crosby-inspired boys' choir singing this song, Swing on a Star. This song seems to indicate that a new hope is on the horizon. Now, the song itself is all about lessons, right? Bing Crosby's character, Father O'Malley, is instructing and teaching, but he's also meeting the children where they're at. And this young, fresh-faced group represents the new change which needs to happen in the parish in order to save it. And in a sense, they were right. The change from the way things were was inevitable. Catholics wanted a chance for success for the American dream. And basically, for the first time in their American history, they were just like anybody else. But just how much change would happen and the speed to which it would happen, I don't think anybody saw coming. Next time on Mystery Through Manners. to Dr. Joseph Burns for letting me tell his story and tell really all the scholars we've interviewed for the past two series. You can visit our website for more information on all that you learned today and all of the scholars who we interviewed today. Please check out our social media, particularly Instagram and Facebook for updates on some future series. And as always, thank you to Sean Garrison for his awesome opening song, Exceeding. We will be back in just one week. God bless you and we'll see you then.